I'm Matthew Dubins. Welcome to Don't Scare Me with Donor Data, my podcast where I talk all things donor data with nonprofit professionals near and far to help get you more familiar with its trials and triumphs. What had uh, precipitated this um, was I wanted to talk to you uh, about your understanding of um, what exactly have you noticed with regards to um, to, to like uh, fundamental fundraising analytics? Uh, like what amongst these analytics has uh, changed uh, with the onset of uh, this pandemic? Uh, and, you know, perhaps uh, what hasn't changed so much? Is uh, I, I know that you know you're a part of uh, responsive fundraising, um, but I mean you I think also have uh, you know your own um, uh, your own work that you do apart from responsive fundraising, and uh, I, I'm just curious to hear um, like what uh, what you've learned. Uh, throughout this whole ordeal. Yeah. So just to give you a little brief on my background, uh, I spent 25 years in higher education in greater Boston. 15 of those years were at MIT. Uh, And I've done, you name it, in advancement, pretty much everything from alumni relations, annual giving, major gifts. Many of those 25 years were in some level of management beginning management, middle management, and senior management, um, in and out of campaigns, uh, all different, you know, small institutions, large institutions, um, research universities, liberal arts, public, private. So I feel like I've, um, in the higher ed space, really covered the landscape there without, mm-hmm. without having to move. Uh, there's so many universities in the Boston area. I was able to, um, to experience a lot of different organizations and um, really, I think, enrich my own knowledge of how higher ed advancement works. So you're asking, you know, what am I seeing that is different or is not different in this era? So now I am a consultant. I started my own consultancy about three and a half years ago. And over the last year, just over a year, uh, I have connected with Jason Lewis from Responsive Fundraising, and we've collaborated to um, form a team. And I represent the New England era uh, area for Responsive Fundraising. So I sort of toggle between both my own consultancy and working with Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the big things that has changed, obviously, is that um, you know we are now trying to advise people on how they're connecting with people when you cannot physically connect with people. So one of the things that is happening is that universities or all nonprofits really are trying to engage their constituents online. And so in terms of data, that's an opportunity to be collecting information about people. And I mean that in the best sense, who is being responsive to an online relationship with you? What can you do while you are online um, to learn more about them? For instance, you can take surveys 
uh, on Zoom calls and things like that. So you ought to take advantage of the audience that you are capturing and um, learn about them while you have them in the room, so to speak, in the Zoom room or whatever platform you're using. Um, in addition to that, you know, I, I know that universities and other nonprofits are using their social media outlets more to uh, push out content. And there again, you're probably building a larger audience because that's where you're meeting up. And um, you can learn more about people from their social media um, relationship with you. Up to and including you should be collecting their social media handles, uh, certainly LinkedIn, and I think is a great one because, you know, folks tend to update that on a regular basis. And it is something that um, can give you a lot of insight into who they are, their career, um, their volunteer opportunities that they've had. And all of that should be collected and analyzed. And, you know, it's one thing to understand, for instance, for universities, who alumni were when they graduated, for example, what was their major. It's yet another to sort of map out, based on what you know about them professionally, um, where they are now. And I know from my graduate work in human development is that people want to be met where they are now, not who they were when they were 18, 19, 22, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big change that people need to focus on. Um, what has not changed is you're still looking for the same indicators in terms of wealth and inclination and uh, to think about who it is you, in the fundraising sense, who you should be paying attention to. Uh, there is an additional factor that I like to talk about, which is liquidity. Very often we're analyzing for wealth indicators and that's fine, you know, but um, just because on paper someone has all of the wealth indicators does not mean that they are liquid. And certainly, it does not mean that they are inclined. So it's a combination of factors that you have to look at in terms of um, their wealth. But then of that wealth, how much is reasonably liquid? And then given that, are they highly inclined or not highly inclined? And then you know what the starting point is. Of course, all alumni or all constituents should be engaged on some level. Others, where there are good indications, um, could be engaged on an even deeper level. So this is still relationship building. That has not changed at all. But I think data science can help you point to those folks and tell you where to be spending your time uh, the most. You won't be accurate 100%, but it'll certainly help lead you to folks that might be more interested in your cause and your mission. Mm-hmm. Um now, having had a lot of experience with uh, online surveys, um, I am 100% um, on board with um, sending online surveys to your donors uh, just to have them answer, you know, certain questions that might um, flag them or not uh, as of special interest to the organization. Um uh, but then, uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned looking to their uh, social media accounts. Um, now, on the one hand, uh, you know, you could do this manually, 
for sure. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine this happening uh, for um, sele select uh, donors uh, where there's a very um, strong feeling that uh, the donor might be of interest. Um, but certainly, um, you know, a manual checking of social media accounts uh, really won't have the highest level of reach. No. Um, have you uh, have you seen indications that organizations are turning to you know some kind of like social media scraping services? Absolutely. Um, you know, it 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 has to be more efficient, of course, than just looking up each person one by one. That's the slow road. Uh, Evertrue is, I think, one of the primary places where people have um, contracted with, uh, not to do a commercial for them, but they have um, certainly emerged in the higher education and education market in terms of a vendor that is doing social scraping um, and helping organizations stay connected with their constituents. Um, through social media and, um, you know, learning details about people um, so that the programming is smarter once you know people, um, locating people is easier, keeping connected with them is easier. No matter where they go, you can stay connected with them. But there are other services, of course, for um, straight up social scraping. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> And it's funny, I mean, we were talking about uh, identity verification earlier, uh, and I can't, I can't help but uh, think or mention uh, that the same concern applies to uh, looking at people's social media accounts. Uh, so if there's an algorithm that, you know, uh, trolls through your uh, donor database uh, and uh, tries to uh, look these people up on like LinkedIn or Facebook or what have you. Um, there, there still needs to be some sort of um, correspondence between you know the components of the person's identity in your database. Uh, compared to the components of their identity on uh, the social media platform. That's right. And so two things I would say there is keep your data as accurate as possible. And if you can, systematically be collecting that data on your own. So, for example, in universities, when students graduate, um, you know, collecting their any of their social media handles or having events where they're registering through Facebook or young, young alumni aren't using Facebook, but, um, you know, connecting through LinkedIn, creating, creating groups for them where they want to stay connected um, so that you are not having to do all that backtracking. But of course we weren't doing that for years. So now we are doing backtracking to, to catch up. But the better data, the better quality data you have, the better matching that you can do when you are using third-party sources. Right, right. Um, and like, I remember, um, 
I, I remember sort of toying around with um, uh, Twitter in terms of um, trying to match people's identity uh, between, you know, what you knew about them and, uh, you know, the world on Twitter. And, and I would imagine <laughs> like Twitter is the most difficult. Right. <laughs> Everyone's hiding their identity on, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and why you know, not? <laughs> I've recently been spending more time there. You can imagine why. Um, and <laughs> with just all the news, it's, it's entertaining for sure. But, um, you know, I do notice the Twitter handles of people do not, you know, it's not their name. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Right, right. And, and I mean, I, I think a lot of people on Twitter would consider the uh, obfuscation of their identity uh, as a, a pretty serious part of uh, their freedom of speech. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Free speech is being realized on Twitter for the most part. <laughs> Right. Yeah. For, <laughs> With some for, exceptions. <laughs> for, for better, for better and for worse. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So that's interesting. Um, so yeah, surveys uh, we spoke about and um, the value of um, uh, getting information uh, about people from uh, their social media. Uh, we also spoke about, you know, the, these are two things that, you know, according to what you're saying, uh, have become uh, more prominent that, than they were uh, before the pandemic. Uh, and then, of course, you know, like the, the basic uh, uh, aspects of like relationship management, um, not so different. Uh, and, you know, the basic focus on, you know, what constitutes a loyal donor versus a not so loyal donor, uh, those uh, are also not so different. Um, now, what I wonder, though, um, is have you noticed anything different with respect to like, let's say, um, uh, recurring or monthly giving, um, or, uh, e even like planned giving, uh, right. you know, maybe those revenue streams. It's interesting. You ask not so much with the recurring giving, I think, you know, that's something that not enough organizations promote as a way of overall increasing an, an annual donor's gift, for example, uh, by breaking it down. Because of course, most annual donors are giving out of income. So if you can afford, let's just use $100 as an example. If you can afford $100 in a single month, you could conceivably multiply that by 12. And that's really what a donor could afford. I'm not saying that's what they'll give, um, because there are other factors that go into their own analysis of how much they give away, right? So mm. when you add that number up to them, that's like, oh, that's $1,200, but I'll give you $100 out of my income this month. But to repeat that, psychologically, it's like, well, oh, that 
you know, the money I gave you in November is one thing. The money, that extra $100 in December, I'm going to put towards something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you have to get a little smart about that instead of saying, okay, this is a $100 donor. Let's ask them to repeat that gift monthly for the next 11 months on top of the first gift they made. Um, donors likely aren't going to do that, but they will do some uh, multiple of that. For example, they, you may say, I've, I've had my graduate universities <laughs> solicit me three times in one year, which two times was cool. You know, first one was a general fund. Second one was a special project. Third one was, hey, you gave twice. Why not give again? <laughs> and uh which suddenly i thought well i'm a tribunt if you know like a libunt um and i i kind of stopped them but another thing they used to do was okay tuition has gone up x percent will you on top of that gift that you just committed to add x percent to the gift that you just committed to making your gift let's use a hundred dollars again um instead of a hundred dollars will you give 110 dollars that was one of their tactics which sometimes I would agree to, and other times I just kind of get annoyed that they were doing that um, because I am a loyal donor and I know they don't have uh, a high percentage of donors giving. <laughs> I thought, well, let's spread that out and let somebody else give that extra $10. Um, <laughs> so that that's one thing. Um, and it's interesting about planned giving. I have a friend who is an attorney who... Um, helps people with their wills. And guess what? Business is way up. You know, mm-hmm. when you're in a pandemic and your health is potentially at risk, that is the time when people say, gee, we ought to put our affairs in order because we don't know what's going to happen to us personally or to our family members. And the other thing is that people have more time to be thinking about those things. You know, they're face-to-face with their families, um, their immediate families, not necessarily their uh, extended families. And, you know, let's face it, people are dying at a higher rate than usual. And so death is on one's mind. So mm-hmm. I do know, for, at least from my, um, my friend's viewpoint, that um, the preparation of wills has gone way up. Now, whether or not that that has translated into nonprofits seeing benefits there, I don't know. But I, I would advise my clients to understand that people are thinking along those lines. So they ought to be having those conversations, knowing that more people are either reanalyzing their wills or creating them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that uh, COVID-19 has done is sort of reveal for nonprofits what they were always good at and what they were never good at. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I teach through, I teach an online fundraising course through Boston University. And every term we have about 50 or 60 students and they're from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. Um, I had a student whose organization, I won't say the name of it, very well known, has chapters in every state, pretty much if not exclusively did only Um, fundraising events to raise money. They did no relationship building whatsoever. Other other than maybe you could say, you know, the same types of people or the same people came back year after year for their particular events. They had galas, road races, golf tournaments. And um, 
what it revealed, both as he was learning all the different aspects of fundraising, including major gift fundraising and relationship fundraising, he suddenly was saying, this is before COVID hit, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing any of that. And then in the middle of the term, COVID hit. And I, he asked to speak on the phone apart from our class. And, you know, we kind of walked through the fact that he and his organization have been relying solely on event-based fundraising and they no longer could do that. And so what did that reveal is they didn't take relationship building all that seriously or they approached it differently. Um, turn that around. I have another client that did a beautiful job with their relationship building such that they were to have their virtual gala on March 14th. Well, they closed their doors on March 13th. Um, they were going to go ahead with the gala, you know, all spirit and all that, and just suddenly realize, you know what, we can't do that. And what ended up happening is because they had built such great relationships, they actually did as well for their fundraising, if not better, this year than they did in prior years. And while the staff certainly worked hard and scrambled, one of the neat things that happened is there was an immediate call to the chair of the board saying, you know, we're going to have to rethink this. And the chair of the board said, don't worry about it. I'm going to get on the line with other board members and then I'm going to in turn ask them to reach out to their networks and we'll take care of the personal communication so that it's not left to a relatively small staff to do all of that. They certainly were doing other communication, um, including personal communication. And so this organization that had really built these networks of relationships and deep and personal relationships, long lasting relationships, was able to in a very short period of time, sort of activate that network. In addition to that, not only were the people that were going to be going to the gala sort of activated and said, yes, we're still with you, keep the money that we were gonna to pay to go to that gala and we will do the silent auctions or the online auctions. On top of that, they were able to invite all of their constituents into the virtual gala which they've said, no matter what happens next year or in subsequent years, they will continue to have some aspect of their gala or any of their events be virtual events because um, folks that maybe couldn't afford the ticket to the gala were still interested in the content that they were putting out and should be included. Um, and this, this reminded them that they can strengthen their community in ways they hadn't considered before. Huh. That's amazing. Um, I really, I, I like that. I like that aspect. Uh, and I, I really just sort of want to reiterate what you said, which was um, COVID-19 has uh, highlighted what organizations are really good at and what uh, organizations are really not so good at uh, with respect to their fundraising. Um, I know, like, just from reading the news, uh, you know, a lot of what I've seen is, you know, statements of, oh, COVID-19 is exaggerating uh, inequalities uh, just in society at large, of course. Uh, and so this... Um, uh, this this observation of yours that you've pointed out uh, is a somewhat different 
perspective on the matter. Uh, and, you know, there's certainly uh, um, some good news stories in that, uh, in that perspective. And uh, there's this one example from uh, up here in Canada. Uh, so we've got, and I think this is also uh, um, an American organization as well, uh, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Am I right? Is that American yes. too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, so JDRF, um, they had uh, they had a major fundraising event, uh, like just across the country, kind of a thing. Um, I um, I can't remember whether it was like a, a charity run or walk or something, but anyway, regardless. Uh, I mean, this is something that uh, uh, drew in a lot of revenue for them. Um, and so then, of course, you know, COVID-19 hits and uh, they are flung into the situation that, you know, so many other organizations, uh, not only across the continent, but uh, across the world uh, were experiencing Um and uh, so naturally they, uh, um, similar to this, you know, virtual gala idea that uh, you had just finished talking about, uh, they had uh, sought an alternative to their um, uh, uh, national fundraising event uh, that could be done completely online. Um, and so they did it. Uh, they basically organized this thing uh, uh, in like record time. Um, and I really, I, I feel like I want to reach out to someone from their organization and ask them like how it went, you know, what, what kind of uh, revenue differential was there? You know, did people really step up to the plate? Uh, or, you know, did it flop? Um, but I, I would have a hard time truly believing that, you know, it was a complete flop. So I'll, I'll uh, be sure to update <laughs> you if I manage to reach someone from their organization. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting because um, behind that, you need to have built relationships, at least on the first level of, can you count on a group of volunteers, for example, to reach out to the folks that they know to get them connected back to you and your cause? Uh, here's another thing that I heard about that made so much sense when I heard about it is the show and tell aspect of it. Um, you know, there are many organizations that don't necessarily obviously line up for COVID-19, um, you know, uh, support. For example, you know, if you're not an organization or if you're an organization that, that maybe teaches young students classical music, right? On the face of it, you could say, well, we could do without that. But then let's take this a level deeper. Or these young people are stuck at home with daytime schooling that is less than optimal. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And you as an organization have committed to them to say, we're going to continue to teach you classical music. Imagine the gratitude of the parents <laughs> whose kids are, are continuing to do something that they're very passionate about online with such care that they're not going to be losing their ability to play. In fact, they will probably be getting ahead of most students who are, in, for example, in a school band um, because they have that special attention. Now, if you turn and said to those parents, how do you feel about that organization now? Now, it may not be like food relief or shelter relief or that kind of thing, but it's, it draws into the heart someone who cares very much about their child, probably the primary thing in their life, um, and occupies that child with their passion. I'd feel great about that. My son plays baseball. He's back playing baseball right now, albeit very carefully and all of that. And I'm thrilled because that's his passion in life. Um, so that's what I mean about something may not be so obvious, but if you can draw the, the a story out such that um, you are really touching the hearts of those that you're impacting and sharing that story on a broader level with other people who can appreciate like why that's important. Or even if we're still using classical music as the example, why is classical music important to teach? or to have people master. Um, but I did see an example of a food bank. Um, early on, you know, people were lining up in their cars and the lines became longer and longer. And the director of development at the food bank just went to the parking lot with her camera, with her iPhone, and just, you know, from a distance, didn't show anybody specifically, just showed the line and then put it on her own social media. And she said, suddenly, you know, she was getting inquiries from people that obviously were her personal connection saying, how can I help? So that aspect mm. of showing what the what is happening when we're all shut in, um, if you're able to do that, and then telling your story behind that um, can be also powerful. And back to, you know, well, how, why does that matter? Well, if you're using that um, medium of, of showing and telling through social media, People always want to go viral, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you have a very good story and it's hitting the, the hearts of people, it will be shared. And perhaps you'll be reaching an even larger audience than you had at once um, understood who, who cares about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful. There, there is... Um, there. Yeah, there are upsides to all of this. I mean, this is not fun for anybody. Let's mm. not sugarcoat it. But I'm somebody from the start who said, you know, there's still beauty in this world. Of course there is. As long as there are people in this world, there's beauty in this world. Find it. You know, you could easily focus on the negative or you could search for your, your own beauty and what surrounds you and point that out to people. I think people are longing for that, <laughs> given everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm particularly in our country, you're lucky to be Canadian. <laughs> I know not everybody will agree, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'll speak it out loud. <laughs> I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah. Just, just the chaos alone, or even the, you know, the sadness of so many people, um, you know, getting sick and or dying. And um, that, that alone is, can be frightening, can be, um, you know, feel, people can feel defeated. But I think we also have to look for the good and look for the beauty. 
and um, focus on that as well. I love it. Uh, this this uh, is much more of a, a sentimental conversation than uh, I had anticipated, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about, data? <laughs> See, all, not all data people are cold, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh... Well, you know, here, here, here's the other thing about data. All the data that we are analyzing or looking at represent actual people. <laughs> you know, so it only informs our relationship. It doesn't, subs our, it doesn't substitute for our relationship. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um and uh, I've definitely had times where uh, people are expecting the um, results of, you know, a predictive model to be able to uh, form that substitute where, you know, somehow I'm magically able to uh, pinpoint uh, the, uh, you know, trillion dollar donors and <laughs> God knows what. Um, but, you know, I like to say the same thing uh, in that the, the data is a supplement to your own relationship with the person. And, uh, you know, you can't expect the data to do um a hundred percent of the heavy lifting for you yeah we call that in responsive fundraising we call that arm's length relationship building or fundraising and um it tends to go to a place which is more efficient right so um we need more money let's send out more emails more letters you know, the thought of getting people on the phone, particularly right now, is so scary to people when the opposite should be true. It should be a joy for both parties to have someone to talk to who maybe cares about your organization and whom you can care about. Um, that can be very powerful. So I say to people, uh, you know, I participate in online chat groups about these subjects. I say to people, get over it. Um, and um, overcome your fear and you will see great things on the other side of that. You will be surprised at every turn. Uh, but, it, but I understand why people are hesitant because they're placing themselves in the position of the person they're potentially contacting and thinking, why would they want to hear from us? What that says to me is you don't believe in your own mission strongly enough that you think yeah, somebody that, else might right. do. That's um... right. And uh, I, I mean, I should uh, send you this this uh, link to a, a blog post uh, that I put on my website. Um, but I had been looking at uh, the uh, uh, Canadian charity tax return data um, uh, to see uh, what kind of organizations. Uh, managed to last long after the great recession of 2008 and uh which organizations mm -hmm. uh, uh didn't so much um and mm -hmm. one of the really shocking things that i found um was uh i mean there there were quite a few organizations like much more than you would expect through simple attrition alone 
who had basically just stopped receiving any donation money uh, or let, let me um, and let me go further than that uh, by saying that um, not only were there organizations that had stopped receiving donation money, um, there were organizations that basically just spent less or nothing at all on fundraising uh, dur during that 2008 period here in Canada. And um, the uh, organizations that had uh, decided to just not spend so much or anything at all on fundraising in 2008, uh, they were like many times more likely to just not get donation money ever again. Yeah, because think about it. They were not consistently building their relationships forward, even in bad times. It's like saying, you know, I'm having a hard time, so I'm going to <laughs> shun all my friends. <laughs> how, how would that feel good to your friends? You know, they would be concerned about you and say, where are you? And if you continually said, well, I'm having a hard time, I'm not, I can't talk to you. <laughs> um, you know, you couldn't really expect all of them to stay with you through that period of your life. The harder thing to do, but the more humane thing to do is just to simply reach out and say, how are you? You know, take the focus off yourself. So those initial calls are simply, how are you dealing with this? And let's face it, unique in human history that we are all basically experiencing the same thing at the same moment worldwide. You know, if you don't think you have something in common with somebody, at least that you have in common, that's an easy conversation starter. Um, so I'm not sure why people are reluctant. And, and if you, if they are, it's either they're not confident in their mission or they're in the wrong profession. Um, and they may want to rethink that as well. And I have heard, um, I'm on the local women in development board and we had our uh, monthly meeting yesterday and um, they were all reporting that yes, the nonprofits that they represent had shrunk the staffs. Each of them were still employed. Thank goodness. But um, one of the women pointed out that the expectations had not differed, that the goals were oh the same. Oh, <laughs> boy. That's, uh, that's a recipe yeah. for burnout. Which, <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, so um, whoever made those decisions, uh, I would say, is not a realist <laughs> uh, at best. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And you know, I think maybe it might it might be this idea that oh, feel lucky that you have a job. Well, that goes for a while, but yeah. not forever. Yeah, I, I I would agree there. Um, okay. Anyway, listen, Teresa. Uh, I uh, I really have to thank you very much uh, for all the time that you've taken today uh, to uh, speak with me on my podcast. Um, but, uh, alas, we should get on with our days, our respective days. <laughs> yes. It's actually, it's, it's actually my 25th wedding anniversary. So it's probably a good idea to get I, on with I, my day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you'd like, uh, I could put a link 
to uh, responsive fundraising uh, on the description of this episode, uh, just for uh, any of my listeners who are interested in uh, learning more. Um, are there any, uh, is there any other link that you'd rather me put up there, like to uh, uh, any, anything else? That works perfectly. Nope, that works okay, perfectly. Great. Um, okay, fantastic. Uh, well, listen, uh, I, I will say goodbye now, uh, and and thanks again. All right. All right, you too. Bye. All right, stay well, Matthew. That's it for today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about me and the services that I offer through my data science consulting company, feel free to visit www.donorscience. .ca. I hope you've learned something interesting from this episode and that I haven't scared you with donor data.